Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about conducting interviews. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So interviewing is hard. Like being the person that gets interviewed is challenging as well as difficult and makes you nervous and all those things. But conducting interviews, especially technical interviews, is colossally hard if you don't approach it in a methodical way and know what you're what you're trying to do beforehand. I really don't like interviewing. I was going to say, the only thing I hate... And my only solace is everyone else doesn't like interviews and does it poorly. The only thing I hate being more than being interviewed is being the interviewer. I just can't stand it. Most of us suck at it. There was a talk at Monodorama a couple of years ago, which I, I looked and I could not find a link to it. But it was talking about if you measure something, if you measure anything at all, people will game that thing. And so if you're measuring, say, lines of code committed, people will start flowering up their code. If you measure how long it takes to close a ticket, people will start instinctively closing tickets immediately so their numbers get better. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about interviewing is when you... It, interviews do not hire the best person for the job. They hire the person that the interview process selects. So running the interview process correctly is crucial and it's intimidating and people don't put a lot of, I don't know, rigor into it for the most part. So we wanted to talk a little bit about how that works and our discomfort with doing it. Yeah. I'm about to agree with everybody here. I, or at least Ken, I do not like interviewing. Uh, and I definitely do not like being the interviewer, uh, because it's just so difficult to, to judge someone, especially in that short, usually in a short time period, you know, you usually have like, a, let's say an hour to talk to somebody about something, especially when it comes to a technical interview. You know, I don't like puzzles. I don't like tricks. Uh, so the, the best thing I've found so far is just to ask questions that will show me the thought process. And that's on, the only thing that I have that, that I have, I guess, leaned upon especially in the last few years when I've had to interview people. Yeah, I mean, all four of us have been thrown into that situation where you're told, Hey, you're interviewing a candidate for whatever position tomorrow. And you don't have time to prep because you still have other work to do. And you're like, okay, so what do I ask them? How do I ask questions about, you know, visibility or systems administration or programming without going too deep. And it's super tricky. And you're, you're judging somebody that may be a teammate that you're working with, you know, repeatedly every day for years. And how do you take an hour of your time and figure out, is this person going to fit in the team? Are we going to, does he bring good strength? Does she bring valuable assets to what we're doing? And how is that dynamic going to work out over the long term? And Judging that in an hour is nigh impossible. And then add to that, how do you make sure that you're not just hiring people that look, think, and act like you? Because monocultures are bad in all senses, especially in the composition of teams. 
So you want to be careful not to bias the interview towards or against particular groups. You want to find the best candidate for the position and not the best candidate that speaks with your accent or has your skin color or whatever else. And I've definitely encountered that the most common thing that will happen when you're doing interviews and building a team is that you will acquire a team that looks and thinks and acts and has the same base instincts of the existing people. You will kind of grow that same uh, mindset, that same culture. And that doesn't produce the, the highest performing teams by far. Yeah, I think I think there's a balance to be struck there where you want a team to, to have diversity. You, you do not definitely want a monoculture there. But you want the team to function cohesively as a team and and how do you determine how do you figure that out how do you find those yeah air quote intangibles i mean does jared laugh at my jokes and do we get along or does he bring knowledge of some different technique <laughs> that that will be really advantageous for the team that i'm building right haha <laughs> it's hard though i mean and you're right about you know you you avoiding the monoculture i had once a position we had a guy we really wanted, and at that company, everybody had to interview with the CEO. It was a smaller company, and we really wanted this guy. He was technically amazing, and the CEO just, no, nah, he, he won't fit in. And that was it. Yep. Now, he was probably right. <laughs> I've been in um, those interviews. You know, guy is super smart brings a lot of skill is clearly you know familiar with what we're trying to do but you just know that the personalities won't won't match it, it's interesting uh, um my company is coming out of a restructuring and and starting to look at hiring and we've been discussing you know what are we going to look for and things like that and i brought up um an interview that actually all four of us were part of the interview side we were not the interviewing this guy and we asked him, you know, and I know everybody's going to remember this, you know, what have you done that you would like to go back and fix? Because now, you know, you kind of did things wrong. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that was very telling. And yeah. totally non-technical answer to a non-technical question. And I knew there was no way a senior level guy who's been at it for a while has made no mistakes. Or there's nothing in the current stack that they run that they're not proud of. We all have things that we, we have done because expediency or we're turning this thing off in three months, but we need to keep it running for three months. So sure. I'll just put a bandaid on it. It's ugly. And then the date gets moved. And so we're like, okay, well now that stupid hack is still in production six, eight months later, but it was at the time you made the best decision you could. So I definitely find being interviewed easier of the two. Significantly. Oh, yeah. Um, In my spare time, I'm a musician and I've done lots of auditions. And it's all about, you know, being confident and being cool, knowing your stuff when you walk in the room. And interviewing uh, for technical positions is really super similar um, and one of the things that that I suggest that, you know, when people ask me, you know, what do I prepare for is make sure you have some stories about things that you wish you could have done better 
or mistakes that you've made in the profession and you know what how you've recovered from that or what you would do better today and that that tells the interviewer so much about you know how you root cause a situation and you come up with with recommendations for fixing a potential problem and just how that part of your brain kind of works. And that kind of question as an interviewer is a great question. You want something that's open-ended that when you ask the question, they're not going to give you a yes or a no or a two cent or two word answer. And then just stop talking. You want to, to ask questions that they're the candidate is going to expound upon the thing. They're going to talk for a little while and you can hear how they think on their feet. You can hear, how they assess problems. You can hear those kinds of things. So those kinds of questions are super valuable. I honestly recommend that if you're going to, to be doing interviewing a lot, write down your questions and then read them out loud and see if they sound sensible. See if they sound like you're not, or how would you answer this if you're trying to give it the shortest answer possible? Because you don't want to let a candidate just sort of talk for two seconds and then stop because you, you're evaluating them. You don't want it to be a, a really quick thing. One thing I've learned that's super important about interviewing is be very careful not to ask questions that are more or less new trivia. Oh, God. Um, and <laughs> my manager recently called me out on some of my questions that appear to be trivia when I do interviewing. And, you know, sort of working around some of the details here is kind of interesting. Being in the observability space... I want my interviewee to be able to tell me a story that involves their knowledge of statistics. Can they do some you new know, college 101 statistics to do some basic anomaly detection, understand how a distribution works, that kind of thing. And you know, asking them, you know, what's the difference between an average and the 50th percentile uh, is, is definitely trivia. And so my, my take there is I want to set up the interviewee to be able to tell me a story about how they've figured out the difference between a, a Gaussian distribution and a gamma distribution to help them understand something super important or solve a problem. Glad I'm not interviewing with you. I'd tank. Yep. Same here. <laughs> well, it, it depends what you're interviewing for and you have to be careful to, again, like I said in the beginning, ask questions that give you answers of, do I want to hire this person or not? And be careful about those questions. I, Jack, that example is really, it's, it's on the border between trivia and it's not a trick question, but yeah, the, and the, you can't the brain ask teasers. people to compass, contrast and compare Gaussian and, and gamma distributions and tell you what they are. That's, that's bonkers. But that's what you're looking for in a story. You're looking for somebody who has that kind of depth. But I'm looking for um, somebody that understands measuring latency from an application. And latency and averages and normal distributions are very different. And it's that experience that I'm trying to get them to reveal and to tell a story about. And if they've got a great story about how they use latencies to build SLOs to measure the performance and health of a application. Um, I'm super interested. But on the, backing up for just a second, um, I'm really glad that the trick question thing has gone out of, you know, out of popularity for a long time in the tech tech sphere. The questions about like how many ping pong balls can, can you fit inside an airplane or 
whatever the, the, the stupid stupid questions you've been shrunk all, to a centimeter tall and you're at the bottom of the blender how do you get out yeah <laughs> all they're doing is trying to Dunk. prove that the interviewer is smarter than the candidate that's all they do yep and it's stupid and it's selfish and it leads to bad hires and i think today that that position has tilted to where some successful companies many successful companies have this hubris about them of we're the best and the brightest are you capable of, of, of performing on our level? And I mean, the power imbalance that happens sometimes in an interview forum is just incredibly awkward. I don't know if it's just, you know, once you reach a certain seniority level, I, I find that anymore when I'm interviewing, it's also me trying to deciding if it, I want to work for them. <laughs> oh, yeah. totally. When I'm, when I'm on the <laughs> other side, when I'm on the, the, the candidate side, I am definitely asking questions about, is this a place that I'm going to want to work? And exactly. so many interviews I've gone through, because my, my father gave me advice years ago when I was a wee lad, that you should always be interviewing and not because you're wanting to take a job, but because you're wanting to keep your interviewing skill strong and you should just do it. It's, it's a repetitive thing. Do it over, over and over and over again. Keep on trying it and you'll get better at it. And one of the things that I'm trying to find out is, is this a company that I would actually want to work at? And frequently from what I get from the interviewers is no, this is a company that I want to run screaming from. So be careful. Yeah. Asking yeah, those that... questions is, is hard. And I've, I'm not as good as Brendan, I don't think. But then again, when I'm interviewing a candidate, when I feel that you, know, they've turned the tables on me, uh, usually I'm really impressed with that person. Well, not to be too bold, but I think I've probably interviewed more than Either Jack or Jared combined, probably not more than Ken. You, you've been in the, in the field longer than I have, but I am aggressive about constantly interviewing, even for jobs that I don't want. I tend to, I, I've long since had the philosophy that I'll pay attention to just about any recruiter job contact that looks like they actually looked at my resume, my qualifications, and it's not just a buzzword, send you an email. And that I will talk to anyone because I don't want to miss out on that golden opportunity simply because I didn't open an email. And that leads to a lot of interviews. Yeah, um, it does. But I don't know if it's still my favorite was that for a while, every, every interview had, what's your dream job? And <laughs> I would sit there and look at them, beer and cigar tester in the Caribbean. <laughs> I was going to say um, independent wealth. Yeah, I mean, right. and, retirement, and it was I, it, one. They've lost points by asking that question because my dream job isn't in technology. I would love to, to be as beer cigar in the Caribbean, or I worked for years as a cook and loved it. You just can't make the same kind of money as you do in technology. So here I am, and so uh, I, for me, it's how do they respond when I then come back with that answer when they stare at you blankly like you just drop the load on their table i'm like well i don't want to be here yeah if they laugh and they you know acknowledge that hey that's a good one and and it generates a conversation hey these are people i could i could work with and and taking it back a little bit on the other side of the table when you are interviewing a candidate one of the things that i'm looking for is do they have interest in the company that i'm working for that i'm hiring for have they done at least cursory research as to what we do what the team does what the position is are they asking questions, probing questions to, to uncover more about the team? 
Because if they're not, they're probably not serious. And if they're not serious, you probably don't really want them on your team. You know, that that question about your your dream job reminds me of also, uh, you know, asking what your your weaknesses and strengths are and the whole, well, actually, my weaknesses <laughs> are my strengths and oh, God. that whole game. Yeah, the universal lie that everybody has. Let me, like, I, doing prep for this episode, I did a little bit of reading. And there are questions on Reddit about how do I phrase my strength as a weakness? So I get asked a question in an interview. It sounds okay. <laughs> and it's like, if you're doing that kind of analysis, if you're doing that kind of thought, well, good on you for thinking about the interview a little bit. But also, that's why I don't love those questions. I don't love the, you know, tell me about a time you you, met, you messed up. Um, or rather, don't, tell me about weakness. Tell me about time you messed up is more exploratory and it covers more of here's something that went wrong and how I fixed it. And that has value versus I, my weakness is I work too hard. It's like, well, no, that, that's not useful. Right. One of my favorites, I, which I don't generally ask, but I have been asked a number of times is what was your favorite project and what was your least favorite project? And that's a great open-ended question because it gets you talking. Yeah. And it gets people to hear your stories and you can kind of, exactly you can work in the things that you think are important and they can judge as the interviewer, how is this person pulling sources and pulling data and thinking about what to show to me? And it tells you a lot about the person. Interviewing is a very active process, unfortunately. You can't sort of like show up asleep to it and muddle your way through it. You got to actually do work and it's hard. I, I hate the ones where the interviewer didn't prepare, but that's, but also talks the whole time. I, I had one not too long ago. I never got a word in. I don't know how he thought anything of me because he was so busy talking about the company and what they do. And then he, he just went on and on and on. And I'm like, you've, you've not asked me a sudden. And we've been here 20 minutes and you haven't asked me a single question other than how am I doing? Ouch. That's, that's bad. He must like the way you look. Uh, yeah, during, during lockdown and COVID really wish sometimes I could claim webcam issues. <laughs> I've the great thing about lockdown and COVID is that in lots of companies had to continue hiring interviews naturally switched to sort of a zoom fashion. Yeah. I've been doing work for a for a while. So that gives some really interesting, you know, secondary sort of feedback about, you know, what they're, are they used to doing work from home? Are they competent at using Zoom? Can they use the microphone, some sane level of technique? Um, and the fact that sort of everyone, whether you're, you know, my next door neighbor or on the other side of the planet gets treated the same and has the same sort of interview process to go through frankly, I think makes the interview process a lot more fairer. Yeah. And it's important that we mentioned this a little while ago, but it's important that when you're interviewing, you're not just self-selecting for people that look, act and think like you, that you keep the interview pool open to as broad a selection of people as possible. You obviously want to, you want to hire talented people. You don't want to say, Oh, well, I'm going to be diverse by, by hiring people who are, you know, junior level programmers who don't know how to program. That's not, that's not the diversity we're looking for, but you want to make sure that the way you handle questions and the way you handle interviews is as reasonable and fair as you can. Um, not to mention the fact that if you're hiring for a large company, 
people can get very offended when they don't get hired and people have been known to sue companies for discrimination in the hiring process. So depending on the organization you work for, there may be a legal component to your interview process and making sure that you ask questions that are fair and that are equitable and that don't um, discriminate against or target particular um, discriminated groups because you don't want to, A, you don't want to be the kind of company that hi- that is, look, so many tech companies were awful for so long and still are kind of awful, um, but you don't want to be the kind of company that, that discriminates against groups purposefully. Uber had a reputation for a long time, for example, before they got rid of their CEO of being really terrible at their work culture and their hiring practices. And I think that's changed, but it was awful for years. Well, now that living in Europe, it is very, very difficult to fire somebody. So the hiring process, you really need to be sure that you want somebody because there's a real good chance you'll be stuck with them. And so it, it's, I'm just getting, getting to that point on the hiring side here. And we've been discussing, you know, the, the bar is higher at the HR level. Um, we're not seeing too many resumes yet. They're filtering them out because we really, we have a set of qualifications. We don't want to, we don't want to make a mistake. And that's challenging, especially yeah. in a culture that has multiple languages, multiple nationalities. You want to make sure you're not discriminated against a qualified candidate who English isn't their first language or Dutch isn't their first language or whatever yeah. language is, is commonly spoken. And their resume looks kind of terrible. And so you skip them because the resume looks kind of terrible, even if they're a qualified person. So it's, it's challenging. It is difficult and you can't, you know, people who go to school in other countries that have different terms for the level of education or different qualifications or, and you know, it's so much more difficult to look at a resume and, and tell who you're dealing with when, I mean, one, they don't call it resumes. It's all CVs and they, they just, you don't know if they're going to be using the same terms that you're used to. And like GPA. I've seen a lot of people put their GPA number on their resume or CV, uh, you know, graduated from which university with blah, 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 GPA, master's in computer science, blah, 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 blah. And I learned not to include my GPA here from the U.S., you know, about after my first job. I mean, it's just not (laughs) something people are usually interested in. But looking at an interview process for a global team, I have no idea what those numbers from universities from other countries mean or relate or... As, as a perfect example of some of those exact things. Yeah. I, I, What's a 7.9 grade? I, I don't know a lot about it here, but I know it's a completely different numeric scale than the U.S. uses. And yeah, if you include your G, U.S. GPA, even if you got a 4.0, that is way below anything anybody wants here. You failed? It doesn't mean what? the same thing. <laughs> no, I passed. I promise. I got A's. Exactly. What's an A? Yeah, as an as an interviewer, <laughs> when I'm looking at people's resumes, I generally skip education. 
I don't really care where your degree is from. I don't really care how long you studied. Yeah. If you have a PhD, that's notable. If you have a master's degree, that's notable in the sense that you have the degree. The but level really of your care. education, the degree you hold, I think is important, but I'm not digging into your university. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to go check to see if you actually went to whichever school. I don't really care. I'm not going to check to see how that program is ranked nationally or internationally against other people. The fact that you did the coursework and you got the degree from whoever it was demonstrates to me that you're able to put up with the kind of the, the crap and the paperwork and whatever else, but it is not an indicator of ability. It's an indicator of one level of, you know, being able to navigate a particular kind of bureaucracy and that's it. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think only two of the four of us have computer-related degrees. And I'm not one of them. Oh, details. So. <laughs> and, I, and I don't consider it. I've, I've learned that lesson, too. I'm my supervisor a couple jobs ago, who is a close friend, somebody I very, very much respect, doesn't have a college degree. And is really, really good technically. When I graduated from college, that was really the in thing was so many of the bright people that you wanted to work for you, they were, they were offered jobs in college and ended yeah. up not completing their degree because, yep. I mean, as a college kid, if somebody offers you a, a tech level salary, uh, what are you going to do? Yeah. I'm out of here. One of, one of my early bosses who is still one of the best bosses I've ever had was the manager of the department we were working in. So 30 or 40 people. And I discovered after he was hired that he didn't have an undergraduate degree at all. He had started and he was doing it online. He was working on finishing it up. But he was living in California in the Bay Area during the dot-com stuff. And he was in high school. And basically he was offered, if you stop going to school today, we will pay you today. And you can get your GED later and you can deal with education later, but we will give you money now. And he said, okay. And he did it, but it looks bad on the resume in some ways, but also that's why I'm saying like, it's, it's no indicator of ability necessarily. It doesn't say you can't do the job or you're not good at the job, but yeah, it's, not having a, a bachelor's of computer science doesn't mean I'm not going to interview you. Do you have a bachelor's? Do you have some relevant work experience that gives you the same experience that I would expect right. from, for the, the position i'm interviewing for so for it's, me it's entirely it's, the project work yeah it's project work it's you know i can complete a project i can handle bureaucracy more so than i went to north carolina state university and had this professor and studied this this specific algorithm when, once you've been in the workforce force for a certain number of years the education no longer is uh, is as important or ceases to be important at all because you've now built up your resume, you real, you have the project work under your belt. You've done, you've proven it and it's less relevant. Um, maybe for some places it still matters. I know I was at a, uh, one company that got acquired by a very large international conglomerate and their HR had a fit because they had people with, without degrees, supervising people with degrees and it just didn't fit in their system. Um, and it required some senior level uh, override to allow these people to stay in their positions. It was, but that's, that's not the norm. And I don't, you know, when I'm looking at resumes, I look at what have you done? Where have you done it? 
education, yeah, it's helpful to see that, yes, you you were able to do it, but the work matters more. Yeah, I, I early on in my career especially, I would get deemed, because I only have an associate's, so I didn't go on uh, any further, because I, I necessarily didn't get like a great job offer, but I was already getting into the industry, and I just didn't want to stick around in, in college anymore, so... But when I would try to early on try to jump around, especially at I guess more, I wouldn't say enterprise, but like especially banking jobs, like I would lose out. I'd be filtered out through HR because I didn't have a four year degree. And something I realized early on was that if the filtering process is that strict, I probably don't want to work there anyway. Relying on projects and on like a GitHub resume effectively is such a better tool for me than looking at somebody's education experience. Exactly. It's also why I really don't like programming interviews. I, I dislike the way they are often testing for, do you know how to invert a binary tree? Do you know how to do common string operations without using the common operators? And it's like, okay, so I'm doing this and I'm designing this. Why? Because you're trying to see how I think or because you're trying to trick me because you want to, you want to do as essentially a trivia test if somebody has you know grinded through leet code or hacker rank or whatever it is and that's not again yeah, that's not a useful signal to thing. that you don't want to ask trivia in the interview but do you understand this particular algorithm is a trivia like question and is kind of what i struggle with when i look for observability folks i'm looking for someone that has that has dipped into some of the math behind observability and i can't base an interview around that, but I really expect some entry-level uh, ability in statistics to participate in this field. Um, one of the things that I was looking at in a recent candidate I had on my interviewing slate uh, was the candidate outlined a specific project that he had done with a specific uh, uh, vendor SaaS tool and then after that, he had the phrase that was something similar to perform some numerical mathematical analysis on whatever, on, on the project. And it wasn't really very specific, but that was a flag for me of, of I want to ask about this project and what, what was actually accomplished here and, you know, what, what more details were so I could get a sense of what this candidate was capable of bringing to the team. And and I think that's totally fine, especially because it was on the resume. I really like setting up the candidate to to tell good stories, not, you know, pair programming with someone. If you're going to ask programming questions, write them down beforehand. Assess or understand before you ask the question what you're looking for. And honestly, tell the candidate that, look, we're not, I'm not going for you know, I don't care about typos. I don't care about getting the exact method name correct. I mean, if it's a super common operation, you should probably understand how it works. But if you know that there is a function that does something built in, go ahead and use it. And if you get the name a little bit wrong, I'm not going to kill you. Or if you get the order of arguments wrong, I'm not going to be angry about it. I'm looking to see, can you reason your way through a thing in code? But again, I really dislike coding interviews for these kinds of reasons. I recently had one that was a coding... The coding part of the interview was five hours. Five questions. Wow. Four of them, three of them were trivial. 
One was an essay and one was a significant implement this algorithm type. Who has time to review that? <sighs> Who has time to do that? Because I was still employed. I had to take a day off. Um, the position would have been worth it, but I didn't. In the end, I didn't get it. And I don't know why. But I thought I did reasonably well, but it was five hours. And I will say, though, the essay question was good. And so good that I copied and pasted it, and I'm going to use it myself now when I enter, when I'm on the other side of the table. Because it was, and it was an, but it was an essay. It was here's a situation. How do you proceed? And it was an excellent question. And I was warned ahead of time that that one, because of the position I was interviewing, I should put the effort to. And it was. But it was not the programming side of it is like, you know, one, I don't write code anymore. I was rusty. And two, three of them were trivial. And the other one, I just missed a boundary case. And I mean, it had built into, you know, testing and everything else. I'm like, this is just frustrating as hell that I just took a day for this. It's frustrating as anything to write a program like you're doing homework in college where yeah. you spend a couple of hours of writing a programming assignment and you send it into this automated grading system and not even human looks at it. Yeah, I tell candidates that I'm not going to try to compile their program unless it looks like it's really, really close. Because, um, again, I'm, I'm more worried about flow. I'm not really worried about, like, did you exactly use the right syntax for everything? I want to make sure that we're... You try to level set beforehand so the, the candidate gets gets to be more relaxed taking the test and is able to show me how they think. Cause I don't care so much about how they memorized every algorithm. I care more about how do they think. And especially uh, a recent coding experience, uh, a coding exercise I did. Um, the interviewer flat out told me, you know, I go ahead and use Google, use whatever you would normally use to look up whatever you need to look up. And I realize the the interviewing exercise, uh, you know, was focused around you. Know, can you build this little script? But it's more like, how does your brain work? How do you problem solve? How do you, yeah, figure this thing, figure these things out? And they were more interested in what I was looking to search for, um, than the actual code that I produced. It's for, for me anymore. You know, I'm, I I expect that a candidate is you know, going to get the code right. Did you write something that's maintainable? Did you write something that when I end up having to go into your code a year later, I'm going to understand what you're doing? You know, how well common it is, how, how well are variable names named chosen so that I can understand how you did it down the road. My interview maybe, code is the messiest code ever. <laughs> well, and that's the point. I, I, you don't learn as much from it. We've recently downsized, and I'm having to go into other people's code, and it's invaluable. Invaluable to have well-written code that's maintainable, as opposed to well, it works. I've had people question me that some of my code, some of my Terraform code, had too many comments in it, and I'm like, <laughs> "Wait a minute, what do you mean too many comments?" Yeah, I I am adamant that every variable. Fill in the description field. 
with something that makes sense. Well, you're the, the, the comments part of the code should be telling people why the code is doing the thing it's doing, not how it's doing it. And the code itself with the variable names and the method names and the function names should be clear enough about what it's doing. So the, the comment is we're, we're doing this particular thing because of these environmental conditions or this workaround we have to hit or this library's issue or whatever. And then the code should be readable and understandable directly from the code. But the fantasy that code is self-documenting is a fantasy. Totally. So what kind of problem exer problem solving exercises do you guys use when you interview a candidate? I mean, I generally ask, like we've talked about, ask for a, a story, you know, like what, what was a challenge? What, what was something that you faced that was very challenging? And please, you know, use details, go through the, your thought process and, and show me you, how you started with the problem and ended up with the resolution. I really like the favorite project, least favorite project, um, because they give you a chance to ask a lot of questions about the why on both of them. Um, but as far as problem solving, I, <laughs> the one that I, I just received is one I'm going to use all the time now, which is a, here's the starting situation. How do you proceed? It, the, the, the question itself was only a couple sentences and it took two hours solid of writing to get to where I thought I got started. My current favorite, um, technical depth problem solving kind of question is one that an old boss used on me. And it was, you're sitting at your computer, you type an address into the address bar of your computer. Tell me everything that happens from a network perspective that you care to detail between that and the page loading. And it borders on trivia because some of these things are sort of esoteric, but in a networked world, in a, in a world where we do everything based on the TCP stack and understanding how page requests work, Knowing DNS resolution, knowing network traversal, knowing those pieces is critical and having somebody fill you in on as much as they can tells you where they see the important stuff to be. Hint, it's DNS. And it's always it DNS. It can give you a lot it's of, exactly, but it can give you a lot of insight into what they know about networking without having to say, tell me about networking. I usually try to have some sort of similar question that gives the interviewer some the interviewee some sort of of situation and you just tell them to you know sort of muse this over in your head ask me questions you ask me more questions i'll give you more detail and try to see how their thought process goes but again that requires me to be sort of on the ball with a lot of details and a lot of intimate knowledge about the problem that I'm proposing. Uh, Cause when you get, you know, some really detailed questions uh, from the candidate, um, you know, giving detailed responses back is what leads them to the next thing is how you sort of judge their problem solving ability. Um, but I think Brendan and Ken uh, may remember a certain raid issue where a 32-bit uh, counter overflowed in the BIOS. Oh, yeah. I've but used that, that one several times. But that's a really hard question to ask as an interview question. It I have is. tried it, and it is difficult to phrase it correctly to get the... to see if the candidate you're interviewing has the right setup. 
And I've also used a question about um, Kubernetes stateful sets. And I usually uh, set up the question with your monitoring system has told you that there should be six pods of this application running, but there are only three pods running and you can see them dying over time. Ask me questions. How would you debug the situation? And was modeled after a problem that I worked with a few, uh, several months ago at this point about stateful sets and Kubernetes worker nodes no longer being available. Um, but I got caught in one interview because he asked super detailed questions about, you know, what does uh, kubectl describe pod and describe node show? And yeah, I didn't have these details. <laughs> yeah, those are a little bit verbose. Yeah. But just, you know, do you have some basic familiarity with this technology set? You've indicated you do. Okay, how would you work through solving a sample problem? When I'm in group interviews or, you know, and not that I enjoy them from the other side of the table, but when there's three or four of us interviewing a candidate at one time, I tend to not ask questions. I'm really focused watching the candidate and paying attention to them. And then I just don't, other people talk enough. I don't see the need to. I get to frustrated that I can't ask the questions that I've gotten written down. <laughs> well, then you should do it with me. I'll let you, I'll give you all the time you need. Um, but I think it goes back to, I play a lot of poker and, you know, just watching the people just looking for, you know, how are they squirming? What makes them, what makes them think all the, you know, they pause or, and you know, the, the look up at the sky while they try to formulate something, what, where they do things like that can tell you a lot about what, what do they got at the top of their head? you know, tip of their tongue, ready to go and what they're not prepared for. Yeah. I, I generally avoid or just try to dissuade people from group or panel interview questions or discussions. I find them to be really hard to keep on track. Frequently the panel will start talking to each other rather than to the candidate. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard to get it right. So I, I just generally try not to do them. And I I found that those are pretty rare nowadays. Thanks to COVID. And Zoom interviews, so I'm grateful, so very grateful. <laughs> I just don't like being on the receiving end because it just feels like the Inquisition. I... Yeah, taking up against you, and here we go. Yeah. So, other kind of general advice for conducting interviews: you want to make the you want to make sure you get the best um, information from the candidates you can. So, try to make sure the candidate is at ease, that they're comfortable, that they have a glass of water that they, whatever it is, you know, and spend a few minutes in the beginning leading the conversation, you know, tell them a little about yourself, give them a, a sense of what the interview structure is going to be. So they're not kind of worried about it. If you, if you dive into an interview, you walk into the room or on, you join the zoom call or whatever it is, and you just start asking technical questions immediately, it's very off putting and you're not trying to generally assess how somebody does under fire. You're trying to see how they think. So come in, introduce yourself. Two minutes, probably, of like, this is what I work for this group. We do these kinds of things. We have fun in our jobs, blah, blah, blah. We have questions at the end of the interview. Um, I have some technical questions before we get started. You know, do you feel comfortable? Are you having a good day? Just try to be friendly and pleasant because it will help them have a better interview with you and you'll get a better idea of if you want to hire this person or not. 
as cliche as it is, uh, concentrating on having a good experience for the, the candidate really is super important to me, especially in the era of Zoom interviews. I'm, I'm super forgiving for the, the social pleasantries that I've grown up with. Um, you know, I was always growing up with doing in-person interviews and, you know, if, if somebody doesn't show up for an interview, obviously that tells you that they don't want the job, right? And I've had a candidate uh, this past week not show up for a Zoom interview and it's frustrating. But later I found out that, you know, he had a family emergency. He's a candidate, you know, not in the U.S. And being flexible and working with candidates as they, you know, kind of figure out Zoom and, 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 and figure out how to connect especially through culture barriers, I find super important. And, you know, when I speak to that candidate again, they know, I know that, you know, crap happened, we didn't sync up, but we can still have an interview and have a legitimate uh, experience. It's not colored by some social faux pas. I think it goes for both sides of the table, but be prepared. It is offensive when I go in as an interviewee and there's like two guys in the room and the one sits down and asks the other, Hey, you got the resume? Yeah. It's like, dude, just lack of respect. Yeah. What's worse um, is when they ask you for your resume. Well, oh, back in the, God, in the yeah. days of, of in-person interviewing, I would always print out a couple extra copies and oh, I absolutely. would head them off. And I would just say in case somebody that doesn't have a, doesn't have a copy, I brought I had extra copies of my resume and I just put them on the table. I remember and doing that. Oh yeah. yeah. Now it, I have my resume on my website and it's just been the super easiest thing. I just keep that updated and yep. any recruiter that I'm care to talk to, they ask me for my most recent resume and I just point them at my website and I'm like, just, just pass it around and super yeah. easy. But just beyond that, be prepared. Have questions lined up. Even if they're canned ones you use every time. Looking I always answer. give a candidate space to ask me questions and I expect some. Oh, absolutely. Totally. And I find it helpful to tell the candidate that, so we'll have time for questions at, you know, now or at the end or however it is to give them that signal of, you know, we have a, an hour long interview or a 45 minute interview or whatever it is. And we're going to do my side of the technical thing for about 30 minutes. And then I'm going to give you five minutes at the end, 10 minutes at the end to ask me questions. And it lets them know kind of how that structure is going to work. And it, it helps, again, reduce confusion and delay. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We'd also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Self-documenting code is a lie. <laughs> so is cake. <laughs>